This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. According to our guest today, Peter Navarro, China's breakneck industrialization is placing it on a collision course with the entire world. In his new book, The Coming China Wars, Where They Will Be Fought and How They Can Be Won, Navarro shows how China's thirst for oil is driving nuclear proliferation in Iran, genocide in the Sudan, even Japan's remilitarization. Navarro is an associate professor of economics and public policy at the Paul Mirage School of Business at the University of California, here in Irvine. Peter Navarro, welcome to Weekly Signals. Hey, great to be with you. How are you doing today? Everything going well? Oh, just fine, just fine. <laughs> a lot of uh, news always about China. Uh, uh, things keep coming, but... Uh, what, what's the latest? Uh, well, <laughs> they're talking about uh, some NASDAQ activity over in the Chinese market. So mm. that was the uh, head, uh, head of the NASDAQ guy on today, uh, financial news. So, uh, is, they, is it... you know, the stock market's growing over there. What What... What I find so interesting about the whole China issue is how uh, we are so unfocused on China here in the U.S. I mean, our, our attentions are, are more directed towards the Middle East and the war in Iraq, which uh, in, in many ways is justified. But on the other hand, in the past six years or so since Mr. Bush came to office, uh, there's been a, a radical sea change in what's going on in China and how it's affecting all of our lives. And I just don't think people understand either the, the, the potential or the potential dangers. What kicked off that change? Did it have anything to do with the Bush administration coming into office, or is this just all internal in China? Well, the growth rate in China, it's, it's, it's kind of astonishing. I mean, if you look at, at, at the growth rate since the early 1980s, they're economic growth uh, annually they've grown uh, about a 10% real clip um, and they've doubled their economy three times since 1980 what really started the whole uh, China economic boom was uh, some reforms by the then premier Deng Xiaoping who basically set up these special economic zones in China uh, which essentially uh, were aimed at attracting a lot of foreign investment, and it, it was it was kind of like setting up um, you know, highly capitalist zones without any taxation uh, to get the ball rolling. And then, um, as the foreign direct investment came in with new machinery and managerial expertise, and harnessed the uh, the labor force of China, um, things began to take their course. But the Bush administration has had an important role in, in stimulating the Chinese economy, uh, particularly post-9-11. Uh, when, when the uh, terrorist attacks hit, there was, the, the economy was already a little bit soft, and there was a, there was a big concern among policymakers that we'd go into a recession or even a depression. And frankly, um, both Alan Greenspan at the Federal Reserve and, and George Bush overreacted um, Bush with his uh, with his tax cuts and, and stimulative spending and Greenspan with uh, <clears throat> a, almost a zero interest policy, uh, very easy money and and what that did was it it helped stimulate our economy but it also helped stimulate the Chinese economy maybe even more and as a result now we're running 
trade deficits, which are just, I mean, they're, they're, they're impossible to comprehend. I mean, we're running $70 billion a month in, in trade deficits here. It requires $2 billion a day of net new foreign capital just to keep that ball rolling. And, it, you know, every day we get deeper and deeper into debt, and we lose more and more jobs because of it. And, um, again, nobody's paying attention. It's, it's, uh, you look at the presidential candidates, you look at all the, the media coverage, it's um, the rock 24-7. Is it is uh, is that because that the the enormity of this problem is such that in order to address it, it would require just too many uh, systemic changes in the way that we do business with China, and no one wants to address that, or is there something else in play? Well, that's a good way of putting it, uh, and I think um, I think what the effect of China on on both um, our politicians and our consumers is it's kind of like a narcotic effect um, it feels pretty good uh... to be able to get um, low interest rates because the chinese basically take all of our export dollars and they bring them back here and, and invest in our treasury bonds as a way of manipulating their currency and maintaining their export advantage um, so that, that that feels pretty good because because our mortgages are cheap and our credit card debt's cheap and we can go to walmart yeah, we can do all that. We got we got money in our pocket and things like that. And for the politicians, it feels pretty good because they don't have to worry about balancing the budget um, or worry about uh, the downside of a trade deficit. But um, it, you know, like any like any addiction, uh, there's there's a lot of downside and 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 some damage that that comes down the road and. Um, it's coming. I mean, there's no question. It's yeah. coming, and it's going. And the longer we put it off, it's going to be even more painful. But uh, yeah, I think that's why. I think I think we're anesthetized, and we're distracted, and those two things uh, add up to um, ignoring right. what is a growing problem. It was something that uh, uh, Reagan era economist Herb Stein said, which was an unsustainable train is unsustainable trend is not sustainable, and that isn't that what we're talking about here. Clearly, uh, we can't keep doing what we're doing with China. I mean, if you look at if you look at China, I mean, let's let's run down the problems yeah, yeah. we've got. I mean, I mean, first of all, uh, we're we're running these these uh, chronic trade deficits, and the, in order for that to happen, we're we're basically transferring our job base over to China, and we've got downward pressure on our wages. So over time, at some point, people aren't going to be able to earn a living at a high enough wage to keep buying Chinese exports. So, so that's, that's an issue. Um, we're not balancing uh, our budget, and it doesn't look like we're going to be balancing our budget any time soon. Uh, and that's not sustainable once the Chinese decide to stop financing our deficits. And then, I mean, you've got, you've got a whole host of, of broader problems here. I mean, people go into Walmart um, here in, in Orange County, and they, they come out with a, with a basket full of mostly Chinese goods. And you look up in the air, and the air is brown. And part of that is often because of China. And people don't put two and two together. They don't. They don't see the relationship between what's in their basket and the, and the crap they're breathing. But it's, you know, it's like the air pollution and water pollution in China um, is is again. It's it's like unbelievably bad. I mean, you go to major cities like Beijing or Shanghai. It's very hard to breathe. Uh, there's over a hundred cities in China 
with a million people or more, and most of those are highly polluted. Every single river in China uh, is is uh, moderately to severely polluted, as well as the the oceans. Uh, there's an epidemic of stomach, uh, liver, and skin cancers uh, in China, and um, literally tens of thousands of Chinese people die every year uh, because of from, from because of um, the, the effects of air pollution. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, I mean, these things are all going on. We're fighting China for oil now in Iran and Venezuela. And uh, it's, and again, people are distracted. They don't understand. Well, we're speaking with Peter Navarro. The book is The Coming China Wars, where they will be fought, how they can be won. Um, there's a, there, we're, what we're talking about is, is a, an economy in transition with China, going from a rural farm-based economy into an engine for the industrial world, essentially. Um, we were, we're, there are, we're talking about 150, 160 million floating, a population of 160 to 100, 160 million people floating around China looking for work, going to these factories. How stable is the uh, Chinese economy? We we're, we're seem to be banking an awful lot on it. Just well, how stable the Chinese is, economy is as stable as their ability to keep selling exports to the world. Uh, but, again, the scale and scope is, is amazing. You're, you're absolutely right. There's what's called the floating population of over 100 million workers um, in China. But, but here's the staggering uh, statistic. Uh, and, again, you are right. It's mostly now a peasant economy moving towards an industrial economy. China still has over half of its people living on farms. Right. In the U.S., it's more like 1% or 2%. Right. Um, so what China plans to do as a matter of government policy is move anywhere from 300 to 500 million peasants off the farms into the factories over the next 10 to 20 years. Now, to put that in perspective, uh, that's about equal to the current combined workforces of the U.S. and the Eurozone countries. And that's new people in China that will be coming into the workforce. So, I mean... Well, and, and also moving them from feeding 1.4 million, 1.5 billion people, I'm sorry, moving them from doing that into moving them into cities where they're just going to be manufacturing... Although, although that actually that actually might be a good thing okay. because one of the problems with I mean China in terms of size China and the U.S. are actually just about equal in size, but they have only only about twelve percent of their land is arable land for crops versus about nineteen percent uh, in the U.S. and we have I don't know our farming sector is about two or three percent now. The beauty of having fewer people on the farms is you break up these small little plots and you combine them into bigger pieces of land that then you can use uh, more uh, mechanized farming and economies of scale and, and actually get higher yields. So that that per se doesn't concern me, but 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 and it's a really big but. Yeah. Uh, they're facing a fairly significant water scarcity problem in China. Uh, they don't have that much water to begin with. They're using, in, in cities like um, uh, Beijing, they're relying on deep water aquifers, which are non-replenishable by rainfall, to fuel a lot of their needs at the margin. 
Um, and all of the water pollution that is occurring because of their industrialization is further choking off their water supply because people simply can't use that for, uh, for, for drinking or washing or anything like that. So uh, the point is that over time we're likely to see China face um, a food problem. Uh, the other thing that happens is that as people get richer, uh, they do things like drink more alcohol and eat more meat. That's just a fact. And both of those things, meat and alcohol, are more grain and water intensive than than not. So um, mm-hmm. as as China gets more prosperous there and they move up the food chain, literally, uh, they're going to need more food. Now, we've seen some of the effects of this. Uh, we've seen, for example, when China raised their grain uh, price supports, Chinese soybean farmers moved into grain, created a sh- soybean shortage, and, and that created this huge boom over in the Amazon basin with uh, Brazil and Paraguay um, and one other country, which, which escapes me right now, going in and, and basically knocking down more, more thousands of acres of the Amazon to plant soy. Yeah. Uh, and basically the problem there, of course, is that the Amazon base is, is called the lungs of the planet, and that you, know, you can see how all of this is connected. Yeah. This is, once again, we're speaking with uh, Professor Peter Navarro uh, on his book, The China Wars. Now, th- this is the thing of, that is most concerning to me about China, is that they're, they're going through a transition that every major industrial country in history has gone through this sort of transition from rural to industrial economy but the problem as you've described it to us is that the scale on which they're doing it will have profound effects no matter which direction it goes no matter what they do from this point forward it seems that they will have a profound effect on on the and, uh, and on, to drive the that point home which is a great point i mean the scale okay consider this every week of the year China builds a new coal power plant, which is equivalent to the generating capacity of San Onofre. You said coal. Yes. Oh, okay. okay. That's depressing. They're right basically, there. they're building one large new power plant a week. Okay. Uh, and in a year, they build enough new coal power plants to, to, to light up the entire British Isles. Over the next four to eight years, they're projected to be adding something like 500 new coal power plants. Now, here's the punchline. The punchline is that China is going to emit about three or four times the amount of carbon dioxide net new than all of the countries who signed the Kyoto Treaty are going to reduce their carbon dioxide emissions by. So the question becomes, how do you possibly deal with a global warming issue when you have something uh, with such scale and scope as what's going on in China. I mean, it just boggles the mind. You've got to remember, this is one-fourth to one-fifth of the world's population. And they're basically growing, they're basically industrializing in in a totally unconstrained manner. I mean, they, they don't, I mean, the, the whole idea of air pollution control technology or water pollution control technology, I mean, it just doesn't exist. And even when they put it on, they don't use it. Is, 
is there some way to turn this ship around and just in terms of the environmental damage and or, will or it be, are, are there any openings too yeah. is, are there any openings is there any other government in negotiation with them is there, is there a, a movement in china at all for, for well china down? itself i mean china china <clears throat> in their latest 5 year plan they've they've recognized uh that there is a trade off between economic growth and the environment and they've they've vowed to go green and they they're they they've got Experimental technologies that they're trying to use that are green technologies, and they're they're threatening to be the biggest solar provider on the planet, and all of that. But uh, and that's all to the good. But the, but the problem the problem is that institutionally um, they're doomed. In 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 this sense, they they have a they have an EPA like we have, but it's vastly understaffed. Um, more importantly. <clears throat> The federal government, you might think that the Chinese federal government, being the totalitarian regime it is, actually has a lot of power. Well, their power lies mostly in the ability to repress free speech. But when it comes to managing affairs out in the provinces, they've got relatively little power. And and what they did was when they when they went into their market socialism, as they call it, mm-hmm. they empowered a lot of the, the local governments, basically, to, to get in on the action. So a lot of the biggest polluters are companies owned in part or in, all, in total by local governments. So they're not going to crack down on themselves. And then overlay that, you've got the, the whole corruption issue. I mean, a common ploy is that uh, you pay off one of the bureaucrats to tell you when the inspectors are coming. You turn your pollution equipment on when they come, and then you turn it off when they go. I mean, that that's like a kabuki that plays out all the time in China. We're going to be interviewing a, a filmmaker who did a film called China Blue. It's about the apparel industry. And uh, it's, it's the, the factory is owned by the former chief of police. So I think that's kind yeah, of plays yeah, into that's, what you're... that's par for the course. I mean, that was... That was the that was the deal essentially. In order for Deng Xiaoping to get everybody to to kind of sign off on how how uh, this economy would grow in a capitalist fashion, they had to give the government bureaucrats a piece of the action. And in doing so, uh, they basically have made it really impossible to enforce any kind of environmental standards. Uh, you know there are still. I don't want to. You know it's, this is a lot of gloom and doom. But I mean, uh, clearly, yeah. clearly, what, what the United States has to do is to get their fiscal and monetary po- uh, policy house in order. Right. I mean, we can't run these large budget and trade deficits, which stimulate the economy of China and, and in the process make us beholden to China because they're they're our banker essentially. Uh, we need to do that. Um, I did a major project at the Mirage School. Took a year with about 100 MBA students to to look at the sources of competitive advantage of China, and um, sure, a lot of it's uh, low cost labor, but uh, almost half of China's competitive advantage may be traced to um, uh, five unfair trade practices, which the U.S. definitely needs to crack down on, and these include. A, a complex web of export subsidies and tax preferences, number one. Number two, rampant uh, counterfeiting and piracy. Right. Number three, uh, currency manipulation. And numbers yeah. four and five are these lax environmental and health and safety standards. I mean, China China can be a, a good citizen and part of the world and contribute to, to global growth and, and, and pitch in like everybody else and dealing with international issues like global warming or not. 
and so far the knots winning. Yeah, if we were playing on a level playing field, with all the things you just you just described, bringing wages up to a to a livable level, and all the rest of it, the environmental, we would be much more competitive with China in terms of everyday products that we produce or any is produced around the world, isn't that? That's that, correct. That's absolutely so, correct. Yeah, so, I mean, basically, you can't. I mean, we're fighting with with two hands behind our back and, yeah. and just just getting beat up. Getting beat up. I we mean, ha- think about it. I give you an example. Suppose suppose you're a business in China. You want to go into business. You want to, you want to make widgets to compete against the U.S. Right? You're going to get your water and your electricity and other energy needs heavily subsidized. Yeah. Uh, you're going to get either subsidized rent or maybe even free land. Uh, if you sell anything for export, you won't have to pay the VAT tax. So you get a get a rebate on that. And by the way, I'll lend you a bunch of money. And if you don't want to pay me back at all, that's cool. Now, do you think you can and, make money on that? And you have a labor force that'll work for six cents an hour. And well, and you have a labor force that you don't have to buy any health and safety equipment for. Right. Uh, and that essentially, in many cases, um, is is indentured servants. Right. We haven't even touched on their uh, the 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 uh, the oil that they're after the situation in the Sudan the the uh, contracts they have with Iraq and all. There's so many other parts of this puzzle that we need to we need to get into, but we're running very short on time. We're speaking with Peter Navarro. I, I want to ask you real quickly two 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 sides of one question. And that is, what's the best thing that that could happen out of our relationship with China? We've described a lot of the worst things that could happen. It is happening with China. What are some of the better things that you can see going happening in the next decade with China? Well, the best thing would be for China to to come into the world of developed countries and assume their their international global responsibilities uh, and basically emulate the, the the regulatory environments of of countries like Japan uh, and the u s and thereby deal with um, everything from their environmental uh, and health and safety issues to protection of intellectual property. Um, and that, I think that would be good for China as well. Um, I mean, right now it would, it would tamp down a little bit on the bubble that's, that's about to burst there. Mm-hmm. And it, it would allow China to, to grow over time in a reasonable way and integrate into the fabric. But um, you know, that's, that would be the best-case scenario. Well, let me, let me just interject here. China does not appear to be a nation with imperial ambition, other than Taiwan. Oh, really? Oh, really? Well, no. I'm. Well, China I, does not appear to be a, well, with imperial an, ambition. Well, let me say. Well, let well, me tell, tell you this. Okay. Uh, if you go into Africa right now, China yeah. is active in uh, virtually every country in Africa. Uh-huh. It uses the same imperial tool. Basically, goes in and loans these countries a bunch of money, okay. uh, and then uh, brings a bunch of people over to help them build a bunch of infrastructure. And by the time uh, that's all said and done, China gets two things out of the deal. They get an encumbrance on the, con- uh, on the country's natural resources, uh, basically, and they get uh, access to their markets. Okay. And that con- that's like classic imperialism. Well, that's I, like right out of the Lenin playbook. So, I, meant, I meant in a military perspective. Well, in a military perspective, they're spending twice as much on their military military budget as they are and uh, as their economy is growing. Um, they just shot down a, a, a weather satellite out of space um, yeah. with a missile, sure. and they sure. know full well. I mean, the Gulf War of 1991, uh, 1991 Gulf War really uh, provoked a sea change in military thought in China because they saw the U.S. go in with a command of both 
the, the air and deep space use GPS systems uh, for precision uh, bombings and go in and take a country in a few short days uh, <clears throat> with, with minimal casualties. And so one of China's big goals right now is to figure out how to knock out the eyes and ears of deep space of the U.S. So if and when we have a problem with Taiwan, uh, they can they can neutralize the U.S. advantage. I should remind you that that since 1949, China has had uh, wars or, or battles with with India and Vietnam over territory. Yeah. They went to the nuclear brink with uh, the Soviet Union yeah. in 1969. They fought us either directly or in proxy wars in Korea yeah. and Vietnam, and we twice. Uh, went went to the brink with them in Taiwan. So, <laughs> yeah. So so how is that this imperial? Isn't, no, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't any cuddly panda here, my friend. I just wanted to. Well, I was hoping that we could go out on a positive note, which is that they're happen. not going to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you very much for being here on Weekly Signals. The book is the Coming China Wars: Where They Will Be Fought, How They Can Be Won. Peter Navarro, thank you. Hey, great. And have your, uh, have your uh, China blue guy give me a buzz if you get a chance. Oh, okay. I'd love to talk to him. All right, terrific. Good, good show. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week... I'm Nathan Callahan, and I'm Mike Kaspar, and this is Weekly Signals.